0: We've got uh, down here again on the Lord's Supper table some things for you to sign. You can write a little note if you want to. Marilyn, you want to give us a quick er update on uh, Cheryl Murray? She's one of these who are down here. I didn't Um, want you to get down there and have to come back up later on. So um, I'm nice that way. Is this on? Cheryl? Oh, okay. Um, Cheryl is still in the hospital. Um, Her heart rate is like... 35 percent. So there's some heart failure going on with her. She was supposed to be discharged um, Monday and the doctor said no. They did a CT scan of her heart and her lungs and her abdomen and um, she's got some cellulitis and things going on that are very painful and she is not eating. She's malnutritioned. So they've got her on some really strict um, observation and probably will, um, she will go from, she's at Mercy, she will probably go from Mercy to Epworth to their rehab whenever they feel like she can do that, but right now she can't. That's hard. Been there, done that. Mm. And then uh, also on there, there's, we're going to send a letter to the uh, Jeters just because we haven't reached out to them in a while. Let them know we haven't forgotten about them. And uh, Kay Butler is on here. She just recently sold their house in uh, Blanchard. And so uh, we want to let her know that uh, we're praying for her as she cares for Jean and that we miss them. And then uh, to pray also for Mama Lou. She'll get one of those. She's in the hospital still. We thought maybe she could come home today. They had mentioned that. But uh, As the day went on, they decided that she needs to continue to stay there. She'll be going home on oxygen when she does and uh, with home health care until she uh, gets stronger and better on all of that. So we'll uh, have time to do that, but let's just stop and let's have a word of prayer, okay? Father, we uh, hear about people and we hear about their needs. We hear about where they are and what they're going through and what their future may look like and Sometimes it's bright and sometimes there's a lot ahead that looks really good after they get well. Sometimes it's more difficult than that. Sometimes it's a little cloudy and misty and foggy and we don't understand what's happening and how long it's going to take or what they're going to go through. And that's certainly the case in these that we've mentioned tonight. And so, Lord, we want to pray for our people. We want to pray for the sick. We want to pray for the grieving. We want to pray for those who are suffering. We want to pray for those who are discouraged. We don't ever want to forget that because you said in the world we would have tribulation and that certainly is true. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for the fact that a church body can come together and pray for and minister to those who are hurting. And we never know, Lord, it may be that we're the ones praying for someone else tonight. And next week it may be that we need someone else to pray for us or to minister to us. And so uh, help us to remember that we do indeed reap what we sow. And we ought to invest in other people and love other people because, well, we'll certainly need it one of these days. So tonight, for all of the people that are on our prayer list, for these that we are concerned about, we ask you to intervene, we ask you to heal, we ask you to encourage, we ask you to strengthen, we ask you to give wisdom, and we pray all of this would be for your glory and that we might uh, be able to be together again as a church body with uh, these who are absent from us tonight. And we pray all of this now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 34, and let's uh, take a few moments and finish this up tonight. Uh, the, the theme of this particular paragraph in uh, Scripture Or sometimes, if you're reading, they may call it a paracopy, a new word for you tonight, is uh, deliverance. And we think about how many times God's people in the Bible, as well as today, of course, find themselves jammed up. And uh, how am I going to get out of this? I'm trapped. I was watching a basketball game the other night and there's a poor guy with a ball. He is trapped in the corner and I mean he had all kinds of trouble getting that away. He had to have some help. Somebody had to come up and and get open so that he could get the ball to them. And uh, sometimes we feel like that as the people of God. We feel like we are trapped. Sometimes we feel like we're alone. Sometimes we feel like we need some help from other people. When are they going to show up? But then we read in the Bible that it's actually the Lord's help that we need. How many times do you read in the scripture, the Lord is my helper. He's the one who does that. Sometimes he does it through other people, but it's really the Lord that we need to uh, look to. And so we think about this as uh, David tells us here that... um, Well, let's just read it together. Psalm 34, and we'll look at 19 through 22. And it says, uh, an encouraging word here. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Aren't you glad it doesn't just end there? Because that certainly is true. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But, here's the big contrast. Here's what makes a difference. The Lord delivers him out of them all. All I'm really grateful for that word all the Lord delivers him out of them all and then it says he guards all his bones well that's weird isn't it it's okay to acknowledge that we're not blaspheming or anything that's just weird we don't think about that how many of you have had your bones guarded today we don't think about those kind of things. But I think it'll make sense when we get through with it. And it says, not one of them is broken. In verse 21, evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. And you know, when I uh, read about that, I think about how in the book of First John it says, anyone who does not love the church, who does not love the Brotherhood of the church is not of God, right? Well, that seems to be what David is saying here. Um, Didn't realize that was so strongly stated in the Old Testament, but it is there in verse 21. But then in verse 22, we're going to end on an encouraging note. The Lord redeems the soul of His servants, and none of those who trust in Him shall be condemned. Well, I didn't know eternal security was taught in the Old Testament. Did you? And yet there it is right there. None of those who trust in Him shall be condemned. I'm really glad for that because if you can lose your salvation, that means you trust the Lord one day and then later on you don't trust Him and you go to hell. That means that somebody who trusted the Lord is condemned. And the Bible says that's not going to happen. So there again is a, a good word. So whenever you're talking to somebody who believes they can lose their salvation, now you can remember Psalm thirty-four twenty-two as a verse even out of the Old Testament to go along with some of your New Testament verses that uh, remind us that we are secure for eternity in Christ. So in other words... David was a Baptist. You didn't know that, did you? That David was a Baptist. Okay? Well, what are we going to learn from this tonight? Number one, here's something that uh, uh, is good. The promise to God's people goes both ways in this life. Okay? The promise to God's people goes both ways. We tend to think of promises as being. Uh, entirely positive. There's a promise, I'm going to claim this promise. I'm standing on the promises of God. Well, God promises some things that are not all that great. And in fact, He promises hell for those who don't know the Lord. That is a promise, and nobody's going to have to claim that promise. God just keeps His promises, whether you realize it or not. And uh, even for us sometimes, the promises are not in this life let me qualify, in this life, they're not entirely uh, yippee or hip hip hooray or anything like that because you notice the very first thing that we are promised in here is that we are going to suffer afflictions. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But then he uh, gives us a word here that kind of encourages us, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, I want you to kind of note the wording, many afflictions. Now that gives me the idea that afflictions are not abnormal in our lives. It's not like that if I trust Christ, then, oh, every once in a while I may have a little problem, I may have a little glitch, I may have something that goes wrong, but most of the time it's just, you know, hunky-dory, everything is great. And yet David says here, many afflictions. That tells us it's normal to have trouble. We're fallen creatures in a fallen world surrounded by other fallen creatures who are not redeemed. What do you think is going to happen in that situation? Many are the afflictions of of the righteous now he makes it clear here of the righteous so we don't just sit and go well if you're lost you do all these bad things boy you're going to have a lot of things happening to you sometimes the righteous actually suffer and I would take that to mean through no fault of their own kind of like Job a perfect and upright man is what He is described as by the Lord in Job chapter 1. And yet all of that came upon Him. And so we need to remember those things. Peter in his epistle tells us that sometimes we suffer according to the will of God. And God has various reasons for that. It may be to uh, get our attention. It may be to correct something that's wrong in our life. It may be the result of sin. uh, But it doesn't have to be. Uh, It could be simply because we are going to be an example to somebody else. It could be because we are going to be called along somebody else to walk them through it, and it's hard to walk somebody through a valley you haven't been through. But when you go through those things, and you suffer and go through the trials, you become all of a sudden an expert. You become a counselor. You become an encourager. You become uh, somebody with a Ph.D. in suffering, and you're able to help somebody else through that. And so even the righteous will go through that. And then it gives us that contrast. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Out of them all. The Lord delivers them out of them all. Uh, Now, if we're not careful, we may jump to what we would like for that to say. But uh, we need to think about it like this. I thought about in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, everything's going great so far in the church. You know, we go back to Acts 2. The Holy Spirit comes. 3,000 are saved. And as you go through the book of Acts, you find that the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. And then it says the number of disciples multiplied. Man, that's better than addition. And then it says they multiplied greatly. Well, you know, when something like that happens... The devil is not just going to back off, but he's going to intensify things. And it says in uh, Acts 12, verse 1, and the heading here is, James killed and Peter imprisoned. Well, that doesn't sound real great. I'm not signing up for any of that. And yet, that's exactly what happened here. And it says in verse 1, about the time Herod the king uh, laid violent hands on, on some who belong to the church. Not everybody, but some. And they go after the leaders, of course. And he killed James, the brother of John. You remember James and John, followers of Christ, the disciples there, the sons of thunder, those two close brothers. And now James has been killed. Well, what happened to Peter? And it said, when he saw that it pleased the Jews he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Do we have to uh, do any violence to the Scripture to assume that Herod was planning on doing the same thing to Peter that he did to James? James and Peter, two disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, apostles now preaching the Word of God, and uh, there's no mention of any sin, there's no mention of anything dumb that James did. All he's doing is the same thing Peter is doing, and he gets killed for it. And Peter is imprisoned as well, presumably under the, uh, uh, under the death penalty as well. But we l- read a little bit later in Acts 12:11, Peter has this experience in prison. And it says, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting, which would be his death. Okay, so what's the matter? Was God not with James? Does God not love James? Is God not being good to James? Does God lose some of his power with James, but he found it with Peter? I mean, what's going on here? Because James is killed, and Peter has an angel to let him out. What's going on here? So I'd ask the question, who got delivered out of their imprisonment, James or Peter? Peter? And uh, before you say anything, I'm going to say this. Both just in different ways. Or eventually the same way. Everybody dies. Nobody's going to live forever in this body on this earth. Everybody comes to the end of their race. When James died, he had finished his race. He had finished his course. And when he died, he was absent from the body and where? Present with the Lord. Amen? So he was delivered from prison. That was his escape. God said to Peter, not through with you yet. No, Herod can't touch you. You've got a little longer to go. Later he would be martyred. And the tradition of the church tells us he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like Christ, whom he had denied um, I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, if you could make crucifixion worse, then upside down certainly would make it worse. But we do know he was martyred. He eventually gave his life, and he's not around anymore. He too was delivered, but the deliverance from prison was not his ultimate deliverance. The ultimate deliverance, the Lord delivers them from them All And how does he do that when he takes us out of here and takes us to heaven? And so we may experience temporary deliverance like Peter did. And we may not like James did. But ultimately when it's all said and done, nobody in heaven is complaining. And you won't either. Nobody in heaven is going to go, man, why did all this stuff happen to me? Nobody's doing that and you're not going to either. You're going to be so amazed and so enthralled with what the Lord has done for you. And I believe it was one of the Wesley brothers that said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be amazed at who is there. I I think there'll be some surprises. There may be some deathbed conversions that you didn't know anything about. You? you? How did you get here? And what a great testimony they're going to have. The guy also said, I'm going to be surprised at who's not there. There are false believers and false brethren, and they're not going to make it. But he said, above all, I'm going to be amazed that I'm there. And I think when you think about your unworthiness... ...and the love and the grace and the mercy and the power of Christ... ...that took you to heaven, I think you're going to be amazed... ...like you have never been amazed before. So, when we look at life and we look at the things we have to walk through... ...Peter walked through a thing where an angel came, got him out of prison... ...James was in the same situation... And he was killed by the sword and went to heaven. Neither one of those guys are complaining about anything today, but they're testifying of the goodness of the Lord. So the promise goes both ways. You are going to have afflictions. You're going to suffer. Things are going to go south, as we might say, in this life. But hang on, because one of these days you're going to be out of all of that. And it may be that the Lord answers your prayer right now, but remember, that's just temporary. People that are in the hospital that go home, that's just a temporary thing. One day we are all going to go home to the real home. So remember that. He delivers us out of them all. Secondly, the deliverance of God's people is a complete deliverance. Now we're to that weird stuff about the bones. He guards all his bones and not one of them is broken. I looked at that and what am I supposed to do with that? The bones are guarded. The bones are guarded. Well, Dr. Steve Lawson helped me out a little bit. And so I quote him. When surrounded by the world's persecution, he will know the Lord's intervention and protection. He protects all his bones or his whole being from being broken. And so if we understand it like that... ...then we can say, okay, David, what are you saying? David is saying, every part of me... ...even my skeletal system... ...is under the control and the help of God. Because what God redeems, He redeems completely. Your soul has been saved... You have received a new nature. The Holy Spirit lives within you. And then God has a plan for your body. I like to read 1 Thessalonians 4 whenever I do a funeral when we're out at the cemetery to remind people this is not the end and God is not through with this body. This body is going to be raised out of there one of these days. I thought about an Old Testament story. You remember Joseph? Not uh, Jesus' adopted father, the one way back in Genesis, the one who was sold into slavery by his brothers, and the one who became the prime minister, I suppose we would say, of Egypt. Well, even Joseph died. and In Genesis 50, verse 26, it says, So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Kind of what you do with high government officials and uh, you put them in there. Well, remember, though, there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, and he enslaved the Israelis, okay? And uh, then after Moses comes along in the plagues, Pharaoh says, get out of here and take all the stuff that we give you with you, we're, we're begging you to leave, and it says in Exodus 13, 19, and 20, we're going to read about bones. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, "God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here." And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at uh, Etham, and uh, the, on the edge of the wilderness. And so, uh, what did they do when they left? They went back and got Joseph's bones. That's all that was. Left most likely after 400 years. And yet they got them and they carried them. And this is a thing, a symbolic thing that Joseph said, Before I die, I want uh, want you to promise me that you'll take my body, my bones, and bury them in the promised land. Bury them back home. And so uh, they remembered that. Isn't that amazing after 400 years that they uh, remembered that? And they knew about that and that they actually got the coffin with the bones and with everything else that they were carrying, they were carrying Joseph's bones. Because to the Hebrews, the bones were that part of the body, they were almost sacred the way they would treat them. And so taking them home was saying, Egypt has nothing uh, on, no claim on Joseph Joseph is a Jew, Joseph is a child of Abraham, Joseph is a child of God, and he's got to go back to the promised land. And David picks up on that uh, imagery saying, everything about us and everything that is us, even our skeletal system, is under the care of God. He is taking care of all of that. And there's nothing that can touch you that doesn't first go through him. And again, we've got the promise. Even if we are afflicted, he is guarding us. He is watching us. He is going to deliver us out of all of those things. So Joseph's bones are taken to the promised land. And even one day, our bodies are going to be changed, glorified and taken to heaven. God is not just going to leave your body in the dirt of the grave. He is going to take it out. And it really doesn't matter what shape it's in. Uh, some people think, well, you know, uh, we've got to be embalmed so that we're ready for the rapture. God's going to make everything new. And people that are killed in war, people that are burned, people that are uh I don't know, you can think of all kinds of gruesome things, tortured, dismembered, buried in mass graves, whatever it may be through persecution, it's not going to matter because the Lord is going to take care of all of that and put it back together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 51 and 52 says, Behold, I tell you a mysterion, a mystery, something never revealed before. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. "...in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised..." How are they going to be raised? "...imperishable, and we shall all be changed." And so there's a, there's a promise for you. And so that idea about the bones and about the body and everything, God has plans even for this body that Paul said, outwardly we are perishing, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Well, that's a wonderful thing. But don't think that that means the body doesn't matter. This body he made for you, this body you have inhabited, will one day be reunited with your soul and your spirit. And it's going to be a glorified body like Jesus' body. And it's going to be, as we read there, an imperishable body. It will never get sick. It will never fail. It will never get old. It will never die. It will never Uh, be corrupted it will never uh, decay or anything like that so that's what that reference about the bones is talking about the Lord taking care of all of us even this mortal body number three there will also be a day of justice it says evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned so when it says that evil will slay the wicked. What is that talking about? I think we can go a couple of ways here uh, to understand that. Sometimes when we think about evil will slay the wicked, maybe it means, and a lot of commentators I looked at think this, that what the evil people of this world do, it's going to come back on them like a tsunami. They're going to get what they have coming And the worse they've been, the worse it's going to be for them. I do think that there are degrees of punishment even in hell. Jesus said that uh, it's going to be worse for some people than it is for others. Remember he condemned uh, Tyre and Sidon, I believe it was, and said it'll be worse for you in the day of judgment than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. I think there are degrees of punishment none of it's going to be good you don't even want the least part of that in hell but there's going to be some that will suffer the most and I know that uh, it's popular for people to think that the devil loves hell and it turn up the heat and all of that that's not the case the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels and he is going to be punished there as well and uh, just a guess I would think that in the degrees of punishment, the punishment for the devil and fallen angels that followed him, we call them demons, is going to be the worst punishment of all for them. And so, uh, is it the kind of evil? Evil will slay the wicked. Is that because, you know, it's coming back on them? They've destroyed themselves. They've hurt themselves. They have done so much to others. It's coming back on them. And uh, that's valid because Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, one will also reap. And I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul saying in another place, if you sow to the flesh, you reap to the flesh. And so I'm thinking that if you sow evil, you're going to eventually, you're going to reap that. So evil slays the wicked. Could that be the case? Yes, it certainly could be. But that word evil in the Hebrew, can also be translated calamity. There's a verse uh, that talks about God creating evil in the Bible. That's better translated, God creates calamities. And the calamities of life, will. Uh, those things are under the control of God. Now, when we take this word, and if we were to say calamity shall slay the wicked then maybe we're thinking about something else. The definition of calamity is an event causing great and often sudden damage or distress. We know that with our weather here. Oklahoma weather spends its time trying to kill us, doesn't it? And uh, that's the way we live, and that's the way we roll. Calamity that comes upon people. But I thought about Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And John describes a horrific, horrific event. Then I saw verse fifteen. Then I, I, pardon me, verse eleven. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. And from His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And then I saw the dead, great meaning powerful and important, and small, meaning insignificant, standing before the throne, and books, plural, were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Talk about a calamity. Could it be that David is saying, Evil people reap what they sow? Certainly could be. Could he be saying there is a calamity coming to them that they don't get and they don't see coming? And that's the judgment day when they stand before the Lord. Now just in case anybody's fuzzy about this, it says twice in that passage we read they were judged according to their works. Or one time it says they were judged according to what they had done. Does that mean that if we'll just do good, we get to go to heaven? If we do do evil, we go to hell? Well, kind of. What it is saying here is that every lost person you talk to who refuses to accept the atonement of Christ for their sins, they, number one, tell you that they're not that bad of a sinner, and number two, they will start telling you all of the good things they have done and how the good outweighs the bad in their life. And so it's as if on that final judgment, the Lord is saying, is that that how you want to play it? Is that your defense? That's my defense. I'm here to say I am a mostly good person. I'm not perfect, but I'm mostly good. And they're going to open up books to show what their works were and to show them that the good does not outweigh the bad in their life and to show them that even the quote-unquote good things they've done have been tainted by sin And to show them that you need perfect righteousness. And the perfect righteousness is only found in the righteousness of Christ. He is the spotless lamb who died in our place. Took away our sins and then gave us his righteousness. So that the good things that we do are done by the Spirit of God working through us. It's the power of Christ in us. It's for the glory of God. It's not for self-glory or because we get a warm, fuzzy feeling or because we want to enhance our business. We do it for the glory of God. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Your good works, you do them, but they glorify your Father in heaven because He's the one who enabled you to do so and you're doing it In a way that pleases the Lord. And lost people never please the Lord. And their good works never are spotless. They're always tainted with sin. There's always an impure motive. There's always some degree of selfishness in them. And so when it says they're judged by their works. Why is God doing that? Not because they could be saved by their works. But their works will condemn them. Because they are sinful works. And just pointing again to the fact that all of us, no matter who we are, we need a perfect sacrifice. And God provided that sacrifice through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 we're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But don't leave out verse 10, for we are created in him unto good works. The good works don't cause salvation, but they follow salvation. They're the fruit of that. But for the lost people, they don't have anything about that. Well, when I read that out of Revolution, uh, Revelation Revolution, Revelation. Uh, that's where I look and I go. Well, that would certainly be a calamity to stand before the Lord. And I've often thought, what it was, what it, what is it going to be like to have Pontius Pilate called up to stand and bow before Christ? Can you imagine? And then to confess that Jesus is Lord, as Philippians two said. And you can put a lot of people in that line and just wonder what in the world, how terrifying. That is going to be. And that calamity is going to come upon them. So just food for thought on that. Okay, And then the fourth thing. The Lord's servants are eternally secure. Verse 22. The Lord redeems the soul of His servant. Well I'm glad that He does that. We are servants of the Lord. We are those who have submitted to Him. And we follow Him. Oh and then there's an and there. And none... Of those who trust him shall be condemned. None of those who trust him shall be condemned. And so uh, we look at that and we find that David is saying you can rest in the Lord. Now David was not always at the top of his game. Uh, Now there were times when David was just incredibly godly. And incredibly faith filled in his life. Okay. When you think about those times when he was watching his father's sheep, and he did a good job watching his father's sheep. He didn't sit out there and just fiddle around and go, ah, who cares about sheep? Or, what a menial job. He took care of them. And while he was out there, he would think about the Lord and he would write some of the psalms that we look at. And uh, they were done while he was out there in the pasture as, as a little kid. You remember that when Samuel came looking for a king, he looked at all of David's older brothers and the Lord kept going, nope, nope, nope. And uh, Samuel would say, this one looks really good. And the Lord said to him, man looks on the outward, but I look upon the heart. And so uh, when they got to the last one, Samuel's a little perplexed. He says to Jesse, do you not have another son? And it's really telling what Jesse says. Ah, uh, yeah, we got another one, but you know he's watching the sheep. And we have so romanticized watching sheep. Oh, we even call people with my title pastor means shepherd, and that poyman, shepherd. And we go, oh, the shepherd of the sheep. David was a shepherd out there with his harp and with his staff watching the sheep. Oh, how beautiful, how glorious. (sighs) To be a shepherd in David's day was the worst. That was the job no one wanted. And that's the job they gave you when you couldn't do anything else. Some of you remember Papa Sam saying from time to time, it's a good thing God called me to preach because I'd starve to death if I had to do anything else. It's all I can do, okay? So maybe they call us shepherd or pastor because <laughs> that's all we can do and it's not all that glamorous, I don't know. But it wasn't back then. Shepherds, all the way up, like even in the time of Christ, the angels appear to the shepherds and the shepherds go telling people that a Savior is going to be born. Nobody believes shepherds. Shepherds weren't even qualified to testify in court. So when Jesse goes, yeah, well, we got another one, but, you know, he's just a, he's just a sheep keeper. That, that's not a compliment. Not a compliment at all. And yet he's the one that God chose to be the king. That's pretty amazing. And it it reminds us of the lowly estate the Lord found us in, dead in our trespasses and sins. And yet he calls undeserving, unworthy people like us. What can we give to the Lord? He doesn't need anything. What can we do for the Lord? He can do everything. Why has he saved us? I don't know. But I'm glad he did. Amen? Amen. And so we think about David and we think about his life and we think about him going all the way through this. And there were those times when he was really, really good. He goes to the battlefield and the armies of Israel and even King Saul himself find that the Philistines have a champion that nobody wants to face. And this little junior high kid named David says, you come against me with a spear and a sword, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And who is the one who prevails that day? David does. And how does he do it? By faith. What a statement of faith when Goliath says to him, what am I, I, a dog that you send this little kid in here to me? I'll grind you up and feed your flesh to the birds. And that's when David gives that great statement and then kills him. And we think about all of the times, all of the things David did wanting to build a temple and all of the godliness in his life. Ah, but then we get to 2 Samuel 11 and David's walking on the palace and he sees Bathsheba and instead of walking away and taking the escape that the Lord always provides, he gives in to it and then it turns into murdering her husband and several other innocent people on there and just it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and yet David rested in the fact that even at his worst where he says that um, none, none of the righteous, their souls are redeemed and none who trust in Him shall be condemned. I want to tell you something. That's true of you, whether you're at your best walking with the Lord tonight or whether you just hit the skids and you have fallen down to your lowest. What God redeems, He redeems completely and He redeems it permanently. John chapter 10 verse 25. I love this. Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Speaking to the Pharisees. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And just in case the enemy decides, well, that they won't perish, I'll just go get them. And none will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Isn't that great? And we look at this and we realize that David is telling us that it's not The quality of our life that saves us. It's not our performance that secures us. It's not even how much faith we have that keeps us saved. It's the sacrifice of Christ that does that. Everything you do is temporary and it is, I guess we could say, non-permanent. It fades away. And there are times when you believe God and you walk with God and you've got your armor on and you're defeating the enemy and, man, it's just wonderful. We all experience those times. But there are also those times when you don't put your armor on and it's almost like you get your head taken off, doesn't it? There are those times when we stray off of the path. There are those times when we flat out disobey and we don't even have a good reason why we do it, but we do. And in both of those situations, you are just as saved because the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, you may have changed, you may have failed, but his sacrifice didn't. And it's the perfect sacrifice. So tonight, you and I are fully trusting in his grace this hour, as the old hymn said. Because we have been washed... In the blood of the Lamb. And the blood of the Lamb is perfect. And it never ever changes. And I close by thinking about the deacon Stephen. What a godly man he was. And they arrested him. And there in the temple. You can find in the book of Acts. Where he begins to tell all of these self-righteous Pharisees. And Sadducees about the history of of Israel he does it off the top of his head he knows it he knows the word he knows the story of his people and he tells the story of them all the way through and then when he gets to the end boy does he ever hack them off because he points to Jesus and they are ready to stone him and this is an illegal death Jews in this day were not allowed to execute anybody they had to give the Romans that ability And uh, are that privilege, And so this time they are so angry and they're so mad they don't care. And they begin to throw rocks. And the way they would stone is generally they would find like a small cliff or something. It usually wasn't very high. And they would push you off. And then while you're down they begin to take rocks and just throw big rocks and just bury you in rocks. It's very painful. And that's what they're going to do with Stephen. But something happens in Acts chapter 7, 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, look at this, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You say, Oh, isn't that a nice story? Yeah, but something intrigues me. Everything else I read about Jesus at the right hand of God, what is he doing? This. He's seated at the right hand of God. But this time, he's standing. Why would he be standing? Well, I think one thing might be he's saying, Stephen, don't let them bother you. This will be over in a little bit. And I'm ready to greet you. I'm ready to meet you. You're going to be in your father's kingdom. You're going to be in heaven because of what I have done for you. Good job. Be faithful, Stephen. What an encouragement that must have been. But I also thought about the fact that Jesus is not only encouraging him and welcoming him, but there's something else too. Jesus is called the head of the body. Okay. Oh, I was walking through our house one time many, many moons ago, and uh, my kids had some Legos. And I had to walk to the kitchen for something. It's in the dark, and I don't turn on lights most of the time. I just walked through there. I know where this stuff is. And I'm walking through there barefoot, and I stepped on a Lego. You ever stepped on a Lego? Don't tell me about childbirth being painful. Step on a Lego barefooted. Okay? And when I did that, you know what happened? It was amazing. My body, my hands started laughing and say, stupid feet. And my eyes start going, Well, if you'd turned on a light, this wouldn't have happened. And all that, did that. Is that what happened? Did my complete body start making fun of my feet because they hurt? No. In fact, what happened is, without even realizing it, my brain went crazy. And all of the nerves, you know, were feeling the pain and everything. My hands, you know, grabbed my foot and I danced around in there and all of that kind of stuff is going on. My entire body reacted to a little dumb thing like stepping on a Lego. You know what I thought of? Every time a rock hit Stephen, it was hitting the body and the head of the church was reacting to the pain. You remember when Saul of Tarsus was saved in Acts chapter 9? And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul had never laid a hand on Jesus. But if you lay a hand on the body, the head reacts. That's the same thing that is true for you today. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Yeah, you're going to go through it. And every time it comes, Jesus is aware of it because he is the head of the body, the church. And you are saved by him and you are kept by him. You are secure in him and he loves you with an everlasting love. And all who trust in Him will go to heaven and none, He says, will be condemned. Praise the Lord for His grace. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, we thank You that this reminds us tonight of how good You are and how secure we are in Christ and how every part of our life is planned where we're going to experience victory. And we're all going to be made like Christ, according to Romans eight twenty nine. Thank you for that. We're sorry that we're so stubborn. And we apologize for being so resistant and rebellious and trying to go our own way. We're still like that Isaiah sheep that uh, goes astray. We're still like that lost sheep that... Kind of goes off on its own. That's in the gospel of Luke. But you always find us. You always bring us back. And you will bring us home. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Thank you for that Lord. Bless these folks who are here tonight. And thank you for them. Thank you for their prayers. Thank you for their love. Thank you for their faithfulness. Bless them tonight. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you also are the one who is perfectly faithful to us. To God be the glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.